And once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 7. Gospel of John chapter 7. And um, the chapter opens by telling us the Feast of Tabernacles was near, which means it's fall in uh, Israel. And uh, we're going to pick it up this morning at verse 14. Uh, Now, I'm going to read these two verses uh, out of the Amplified Bible. So uh, when the feast was already half over, so now we're in the middle of it, Jesus went up to the temple court and began to teach. The Jews, the religious leaders, were astonished. Uh, They said, how is it that this man has learning, in other words, is so versed in sacred scripture and in theology, when he has never studied, never had any formal training? Now, up until this point, guys, Jesus' enemies, which were the religious leaders, had been attacking the things he did, the things he did, how he was ministering and healing people on the Sabbath. That was the main issue. But in particular, chapter 7 goes all the way back to chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man who had been crippled for 38 years, walked up to this guy, and told him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And we read in verses 5 and 16, excuse me, uh, verses 9 and 16 of John 5. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Jesus' enemies are still stewing about this as we come to chapter 7. We know that because Jesus mentions it. Verse 21 He answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses could not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus is saying to these religious men who were upset because he was doing work on the Sabbath. He said, well, wait a minute now. You circumcise little boys on the Sabbath day, according to Jewish law. Now, the law of Moses said that a little boy was to be circumcised the eighth day after his birth. If that fell on a Sabbath, so be it. They went ahead and performed the circumcision. And Jesus is basically pointing out, if you can remove flesh on the Sabbath to be blameless, why are you upset with me when I restore flesh on the Sabbath? Make a man completely whole where he's able to walk in fact in mark's gospel he said the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath in other words god gave the sabbath to be a blessing not a curse to his people and therefore it's always right and legal to do good on the sabbath something he pointed out very clearly in matthew 12 verses 11 and 12 where he said jesus christ said to these very same men If you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. See, these religious leaders didn't care about people. They, they, They didn't care about hurting people. All they cared about was their legalistic obsession with the law, And how their meticulous adherence to it, they even tithed out of their herb gardens, how their meticulous adherence to the law made them look so righteous. That was the main issue. 
Jesus said to them in verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Righteous judgment would be judgment from the word of God. Not by looking at somebody and making a quick judgment about that person, right? They were looking at Jesus as an untrained carpenter from Galilee. What could he have possibly have to say that would be of any consequence, right? The same kind of thing happened when the Jesus movement first started back in the 60s. These hippie kids started getting touched by the Holy Spirit was drawing them to him. And so they wanted to find God. They went to churches. Many of them were met at the door by deacons who told them when you cut your hair and you change your clothes, because they wound up, showed up with long hair, tie-dye t-shirts, bell-bottom jeans, and sandals. And they said, look, when you uh, cut your hair and uh, put on decent clothes and come back, you can, you, can, you, know, you can come in. Many of them never did. But these churches made a quick judgment based on outward observance. We see it today. A lot of churches, God's touching these uh, young guys today and gals, and they're all tatted up, right? They got uh, tattoos everywhere, and they walk into many churches, and people are aghast. And they're just, you know, like, uh, oh, they, they, they're thrown into a fr fr frenzy because it's like, you know, these, these people take them out of their comfort zone. And so they make quick judgments. How could these people know God? This, you know. Godly people all wear dresses and three-piece suits and, you know, that kind of thing. Like organ music, not rock and roll and hard. So, yeah, so people make... But these churches are forgetting what God said to Samuel when he sent Samuel to anoint the new king of Israel and uh, went to the house of Jesse and all Jesse's sons came parading by Samuel and Samuel thought, oh, this guy's good. Look, oh, this is the one. You know, and God says, no, I rejected all of them. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, God looks, I, I, I don't look at the outward appearance like man does, height, stature, so on. I look at the heart. And so God anointed a young shepherd boy to be the next king of Israel because David had the heart of a shepherd, the same heart that would go into shepherding God's people as a king. But um, I love what... Um, it says in Isaiah 11, verses 3 and 4, about when Messiah comes, okay? And it says, His delight, Messiah, is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with, righteous, with righteousness he shall, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So when Messiah comes back, the first thing he's going to do is judge the wicked. He's going to wipe them out. Read Revelation 19. Then he's going to establish a kingdom of total righteousness. No more bribes. He's going to be the supreme judge of all the earth. He won't be, you, you, people won't be able to bribe him. All right? They won't be able to snow him with all the, you know, all, you know selling themselves and, and you know, and, and giving them just a, a real line of, of, of stuff because it's like, you know, they, they're, they're good talkers. He's going to see through all that. And so he's going to set up a kingdom of true righteousness based on equity, all right, where justice is not going to be meted out based on your uh, economic uh, strata you know, and, 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 or even how poor you are, but based on righteous judgment. So, guys, up until this point, Jesus' enemies were furious with him basically for what he did. However, at this point in the narrative... And this is not the first time he um, 
started teaching, obviously, but he gets bold now, really bold. It's just six months from the cross, okay? He's getting really bold now. The time is coming when uh, his enemies are going to want to take him and crucify him, so he's just doing the thing openly now. So he, he, at this point in the narrative, he starts uh, teaching openly in the temple, precincts. So now his enemies direct their rage uh, against him for what he now teaches. Yeah, for what he did, okay. But now he's shifting into more of a teaching mode, giving people the word of God because the time is coming when he's going to be taken away from them. He's got to make strong disciples who would then take on the work, pick up the mantle after he goes. And so now he shifts uh, to a teaching ministry almost exclusively there in the temple precincts, you know, right uh, in the shadow of these men. I mean, just right there, you know. And, uh, and so now they get furious with him because of what he is teaching his doctrine first of all uh, they were taken back because he taught with such authority and power he didn't teach like the rabbis did okay uh, who always quoted other rabbis you know well you know rabbi so-and-so said this and another one would say, oh yes but rabbi so-and-so he said that when jesus taught he said you have heard it you've heard it said of old but i say to you uh, you've heard it said this and that this rabbi that rabbi but I say to you, see, he taught with authority. He didn't uh, have to quote any other man, right? And uh, verse 15, the Jews marveled that he spoke with such authority and had such a command of Scripture. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? How is he teaching the books of Moses? He's never studied, you know, at our seminary and so on. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, the Jews were amazed at what he taught because he did not have any credentials from their approved rabbinical schools. But since he lacked this, but since he lacked this proper accreditation, his enemies said that his teachings were nothing but private opinions and not worth much, end quote. Well, Jesus made sure that they knew constantly that his teaching didn't come from man or himself, by the way. That his teaching came from the Father, from God. And therefore, he didn't need any man to accreditate him. He didn't need to quote any man. He didn't need a degree from any so-called university. What he taught came directly from the mouth of God. He said that in verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Of course, the word doctrine simply means teaching. And what was Jesus teaching? The Word of God. In John 12, verses 49 and 50, he said to these very same men, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. So Jesus came to give people the words of eternal life, the gospel. And his teaching was not of himself. Now, he then added a promise in verse 17 uh, and 18. I'm going to read this out of the Amplified as well. He said, if any man desires to do his will, in other words, God's pleasure, he will know, have the needed illumination to recognize, and can tell for himself 
whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak uh, or whether I am speaking from myself and of my own accord and on my own authority. He who speaks on his own authority seeks to win honor for himself. He whose teaching originates with himself seeks glory, seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory and is eager for the honor of him who sent him, in other words, who teaches and preaches for the honor of God, well, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness or falsehood or deception in him. Guys, verse 17 of John 7, I think, is the secret to knowing God's truth as opposed to, you know, the devil's lies and all the false doctrine floating around in the world today. Even as the Bible says, the closer we get to Jesus' return, the more the spiritual deception would be ramped up. We're seeing it everywhere. It's in the church. But here Jesus is telling us, and don't miss this, if a person's heart truly wants to do the will of God, and I'm not talking about selective obedience where they pick and choose what they want to believe from God's word. I'm talking about if a person really with all their heart wants to do God's will, wants to obey him, unconditional obedience, and desires to live for the glory of God, verse 18, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will illuminate their understanding. So, they, so that person will absolutely know and be sure what is written in God's word is truly God's word. The British preacher F.W. Robertson said that, and I'm quoting him, obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. Obedience is the organ of spiritual knowledge. And guys, that explains why these religious leaders who were so highly educated, they were doctors of the law. It explains why they didn't understand what Jesus was teaching and rejected his doctrine. It was because their hearts were hardened. They had no desire to really obey God. No, they would vehemently argue at that. But they had no desire to really obey God. What they wanted was the prestige and the recognition and the money that came from being a religious leader in Israel in those days. Jesus nailed them over and over again. He said, you, lo you guys are such hypocrites. You love the chief seats in the synagogue. You love the chief seats at the feasts. You love to walk in the marketplace and hear people say, Rabbi, Rabbi, my great one, my great one. You love the, the applause of men. You're hypocrites because in your heart you really don't want to do the will of God. If you did, you wouldn't be mistreating widows. You wouldn't be foreclosing on their houses. You wouldn't be doing all kinds of things that God has forbidden you from doing. You don't care about people. These are the same guys that Stephen nailed, right, in the book of Acts, chapter 7 after he gives a long kind of a review of their history, and then he nails these same guys, the Sanhedrin, in verse 51, when he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit, even as your fathers did so to you. Well, they didn't like that too much. Dragged them out and had them stoned to death. These were the worst kind of religious men. Men who were total hypocrites and only gave the appearance of being righteous and holy, as Jesus called them, whitewashed tombs. But in their hearts, it was, their hearts were full of all kinds of uncleanness and um, wickedness and so on. 
But getting back to what Jesus said, if you truly want to know God's will, if you truly have a heart to obey God, God is promising he will get you the truth you need. First of all, to believe. Secondly, to understand. And thirdly, to apply. If your heart is right with him, if you really want with all your heart to honor him and to live according to everything he has said, not just selective obedience again, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Jesus said, that's the bread by which we live. He is promising us, you will know. The Holy Spirit will make sure you're enlightened to the truth. Now, there's a caveat. We have to be careful, okay? And I think Warren Worsby really, author and commentator Warren Worsby, really gives a, a, a good thing here. He kind of brings this out. And I want to read it to you. I think it's important that we understand what the Lord is saying, what he's not saying here. Worsby said, and I quote, is our Lord suggesting here a pragmatic test for divine truth? Is he saying, try it? If it works, it must be true? And thus suggesting that if it does not work, it must be false? This kind of test would lead to confusion. For almost any cultist could say, I have tried what the cult teaches, and it works. No, our Lord's statement goes much deeper. He was not suggesting a shallow taste test, but rather the deep personal commitment of the person to truth. That's when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, comes inside. The Jews depended on education and authorities and received their doctrine secondhand, but Jesus insisted that we experience the authority of truth personally through the new birth. The Jewish leaders were attempting to kill Jesus, Yet at the same time, they claimed to understand God's truth and obey it. This proves that an enlightened and educated mind is no guarantee of a pure heart or a sanctified will. Some of the world's worst criminals have been highly intelligent and well-educated people, end quote. So again, it comes down to the heart, okay? And Jesus is not talking about a person just superficially, you know, thinking about truth. He's talking about a deep commitment to it that causes them to cry out to God to want to know what is his truth as opposed to Satan's lies, and God will always lead that person in the right path, in the path of truth. Now jump down to verse 32, John 7. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things. So there was a lot of people who were think, saying, uh, this, this has got to be the Messiah. I mean, this... This has got to be the Messiah. So the Pharisees got nervous. We better arrest this guy, get him away from people before everyone believes in him. So they sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus. But um, they sent officers to take him, verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, just six months before the cross. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Well, obviously, he was talking about going back to heaven after his death and resurrection. Heaven, a place these very educated but very lost, corrupt religious leaders would never see. Because they would never repent. 
They were so locked into their pride. He said to these same men in John 8, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. After Jesus rose, ascended back to his father, the next time these men, of course they didn't see the ascension, but they saw the crucifixion because they put him on a cross. The next time they're going to see Jesus face to face is going to be at the great white throne judgment. Read Revelation 20, 11 to 15. They will see him before he condemns them to hell for eternity. Because unless a person is born again, they cannot see, live in the kingdom of heaven. As far as people not being able to follow him, where he was going, he went ahead and eventually said that to his own disciples. In John 13, 33, he said, little children talking to his disciples, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, the leaders, where I am going, you cannot come. So I now say to you. But then he told them, his closest men, in the upper room the night before the cross, he started telling them he was going away. And where he was going, they could not come, at least not then. Their hearts were troubled. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you're going to be also. Well, that's what a Jewish groom always did when he was betrothed to a woman. He always went away to his father's house to prepare a place for them because that's where his inheritance was. And he built a little apartment or a little addition onto the father's house. And when it was finished, he would go get his bride, usually in the middle of the night, and he would snatch her away and he would take her to the bridal chamber and consummate the marriage. And Jesus is saying that very same thing. Where I'm going to the Father's house, you can't come with me. Yeah. But you, you know the way. Thomas, I love Thomas, you know, very pragmatic. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas, I am the way, the truth and the life. You don't have to worry about the way to heaven. I'm, I'm the way. I'm going to come and get you and take you to be with me. Now, guys, that brings us then to the climax of John 7, which again began by telling us that the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 2, was at hand. Verse 14 tells us it was the middle of the feast, and by the time we come to John 7, verse 37, we read, On the last day, the great day of the feast. If you weren't here last week, let me just review it just a tiny bit, okay? Because we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles uh, in some detail. The Feast of, of Tabernacles was one of seven feasts that God gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel. You can read about those in Leviticus chapter 23. As I said last week, the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast starting on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Tishri, their, uh, their ecclesiastical calendar, uh, and it ran through the 21st, 
All right, so it started on the 15th of Tishri. Tishri corresponds to our late September, early October, continued through the 21st. The first day of the feast was the Sabbath, a high day, a high holy day. And the day after the feast, known as the eighth day, or Shemini Ezeret, as the Jews call it, was also a high holy day or a Sabbath. On those two days, no work was permitted to be done. Because on the Sabbath, of course, you did no work. You just enjoyed God and you praised Him and so on. So in accordance with God's command in Leviticus 23, His people made these booths. That's why it's called the Feast of Sukkot. It means booth or temporary dwelling places. And they would make these booths, as God commanded, out of uh, palm branches or other leafy uh, you know, branches of trees. And uh, they would weave them together and make these, uh, these little um, makeshift huts. And the whole family would move into these little huts for the whole week. For the whole week. As we said last time, the Feast of, uh, feast of Tabernacles was both an agricultural and a historical feast. It's an agricultural feast in that, in that it celebrated the great fall harvest. If you're an agrarian, uh, in a, an agrarian culture, uh, agriculture is everything. It's your whole culture is built around it. And the, so the harvest time was a big deal for these folks, okay? And so it celebrated the uh, great fall harvest when God has, had blessed his people with an abundance of crops. That's why the feast was also called the Feast of Ingathering, because they would gather in all the harvest. A very joyful time. In fact, to this very day, Feast of Tabernacles is still the most joyous of all the Jewish feasts. But it was also an historical feast commemorating Israel's 40-year wilderness wandering where they lived in tents, temporary structures, tents, uh, tabernacles, and how God sustained them all those years by providing bread from heaven, the manna, but especially water from the rock. Now later, a few centuries before Christ, a ceremony was added each day to the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles called the Water Libation Ceremony. During Jesus' lifetime, the feast started each morning at the time of the morning sacrifice where the high priest took a golden pitcher and with, in a procession with other priests went down to the pool of Siloam and gathered up a pitcher of water. The pitcher was then carried in procession back to the Temple Mount. As the procession came to the water gate, where the procession entered, three trumpet blasts were made to mark the joy of the occasion as the people recited what we call Isaiah 12, verse 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. At the temple... While onlookers watched, the priests would march once around the altar of sacrifice with the pitcher of water no doubt held high, while the temple choir sang the Hillel Psalm, Psalm, Psalms 113 through 118, and then the water was poured out on the altar as a, as a offering to God called a water libation. This was done each day for the first six days of the feast. Reminding the people how that God had provided water, water for their ancestors all those years in the wilderness. Walking in the desert, you can imagine how just dry. And yet God always provided water from the rock. Paul tells us that there was a rock that everywhere they walked and set up camp, there's that rock. And just the rock was there. And it kept giving water all those years. And Paul said that what rock was Christ. 
The seventh day of the feasts was the great day of celebration. Remember, the first was a Sabbath, and the eighth, the day after the feast, was also a high day, a Sabbath, the Shemini Isaret. But the seventh day, which is actually the final day of the feast, was known as the great Hosanna, and it climaxed the feast. In the previous six days, six days, the high priest had marched around the altar once before pouring upon it the water from the pool of Siloam. But on the seventh day, the great day of the feast, he marched around the altar seven times before pouring out the water on the altar. Why seven times as opposed to only one time the previous six days? Well, scholars uh, are mixed, but most of them think that Pouring the water out on the altar of sacrifice once each day for the first six days of the feast commemorated how God gave their ancestors water in the wilderness during those 40 years of wandering. But the seventh day, the great day, they mar the high priest marched around the altar of sacrifice seven times before pouring the water out. That was God's way of saying to his people, or that what they were saying is, now we're celebrating how God eventually brought our forefathers into the promised land into a well-watered land with streams and rivers, living water, which was running water. It, we, now we celebrate how God fulfilled his promise to us by bringing us into the promised land. So you have to understand, this whole week has been about water. It's been how God has satisfied their thirst, right? First in the wilderness, and then by giving them a well-watered land. And at the very moment, I believe, the very moment now the priest is pouring out this water on this great day, the final day of the feast, after having marched around the altar for seven times, as the people are all praising God in their mind, how that God brought them into this land and gave them a land that was well-watered, a land where we never get thirsty. At that very moment, I believe, Jesus jumped up onto a rock or a table, a high place, and he cried out in verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You get the implication, right? Very powerful. He is saying, this whole feast is about me. I am the one who gives the living water. He didn't say it, but he definitely implied it. I'm the rock that Paul would eventually write about. I haven't saved him yet, but he's coming. I, I, I'm the guy that Paul said that rock was Christ. That rock was about me that you're celebrating. Look, guys, verse 37. In verse 37, we have the most succinct gospel presentation in all the scriptures. Built around three key words. Thirst, come, and drink. First of all, thirst. If anyone thirsts. Look, it's not that those who don't thirst can't come to Christ. It's that those who don't thirst won't come to Christ. Just like a person who doesn't thirst for water can't drink. But without the thirst, they have no desire and therefore won't drink. It reminds us very much of an encounter Jesus had with a woman of Samaria by a well in John 4. And uh, how that Jesus waited for her. He knew she was coming. This appointment was penciled into his docket 
before the foundation of the world. And so he went up there to Samaria, waited uh, for her to come to the well. And she came at noon. She was an outcast. People didn't draw water at noon. High, it was the hottest part of the day. Uh, but she was an outcast. We'll find out why later. Uh, but she came alone. She came because she was thirsty for water, physical water. Jesus knew she was thirsty in her soul for living water. She didn't realize that. She had a thirst inside. And Jesus said to her, after he talked with her, he found out, or he knew, let her, let her know he knew, that she had been married and divorced five times without living with a man. And he basically tells her, you have a thirst in your soul that you're trying to satisfy with physical relationships. Just like this well and this physical water, that if you drink of it, it will satisfy you for a time, but you'll thirst again. Anything you try to stuff in that hole in your soul, of anything this earth has to offer, it may satisfy you a little for a time, but you're going to thirst again. See, what you're really thirsty for is God. And that's why I've come. If you drink of me, well, you'll be satisfied. And it will be like a spring bubbling up within you unto eternal life. Because the Spirit of God will come in and will bring forth the life of God through you to everybody you come in contact with. You'll never thirst again in your soul, is what he was saying to her. Guys, there are many, many people in our society that are empty inside. But they have stuffed that void with human relationships, with human relationships, sexual pleasure, material possessions, or some other earthly commodity. And even though they quickly thirst again, it's good enough for them. It's good enough. Okay, they don't know it doesn't really satisfy, you know, completely, but... but it's good enough. I mean, the satisfaction is limited and temporary, but as long as they can keep stuffing that void inside with sex, drugs, alcohol, or things from their local stuff mart, they can tamp down the emptiness so that it's almost bearable. And the reason is because they're so glutted with the world, they don't really realize the void is a God-shaped void. And no amount of earthly stuff will satisfy an empty soul. Now, thankfully, many, including most, if not all, in this room, we have realized this at one point, that we had a God-shaped hole in our heart, and we needed God to fill it. And that's why most of you are here this morning, because you have filled that hole with Jesus Christ, God's Son. And now you're here, not because you have to be, but because you want to be. Jesus has filled our soul. We're satisfied. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not want. He makes me to what? Lie down in green pastures. The only way a sheep will lie down in green pastures is if that sheep is satisfied. He makes me lie down. My soul is satisfied. I'm not looking for anything else. Do I still need to eat food, drink water? Yeah, physically, sure. Spiritually, I am satisfied. I, I, I don't, 
The search is over. I found the answer. His name is Jesus Christ. So you're thirsty? What do you do next? Anyone thirsts? What? Come to? To me. Right? Please take note that Jesus didn't say, if you're thirsty in your soul, come to religion. As in there are many roads that lead to God. Pick one. Doesn't matter which one you pick, as long as you're sincere. He didn't say that, did he? At this point, there are those churchgoers that would say, that's right, yeah. Uh, but I go to a Christian church. I'm good, right? Well, you would be if he had said, come to church. As a pastor, I know that coming to church is not the same as coming to Jesus. I mean, this morning, churches across America are packed with people, all of whom have come to church. You'd be shocked if you knew how many had really come to Christ. I could hear people say, yes, but isn't Jesus in churches today? Not as much as you may think. Don't turn there, but in Revelation 3, Jesus addresses one last day's church, the church of Laodicea. He said to them, you know what? You guys think you're good. Why? Because you've got a beautiful building. You are, you know, you, you, uh, they didn't have buildings back then. But, you know, you got all, all these riches. You think you're wealthy. You don't need anything. You're good with God. Because in that mind back then, if a church was blessed, obviously God was with the church. Because God doesn't bless carnal churches. They didn't realize that Satan will bless churches too. If they don't teach the truth. He said, you guys think that you are right with God. You have so much pride. You don't realize that you're blind, naked, miserable, poor, and so on. And what did he say to them? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him or her and have fellowship with them. What is he saying? He is saying that Jesus is saying that he is knocking at the door of many churches and many hearts in those churches and saying, open up, let me in. He wasn't even in the church of Laodicea. But look, even if you do go, and I'm just talking in general terms, even if you do go to a good evangelical Bible-teaching church, a church where Jesus is definitely there, even if that's true, look, just going to church and being in close proximity with Jesus is not the answer either, really. Even in coming in close, even if you come in contact with him, people come to church and they uh, sing praises to the Lord. They, they hear his word being taught. They're actually coming in contact with Christ. Of course, in America... Uh, Christmas time and, and Easter time. I mean, uh, even unbelievers are forced to come in contact with Jesus. And some thinks, think, oh, that's I, I went to church on Christmas. I go to church on Easter. So did I. My, my you know, bi-yearly pilgrimage. But look, just getting close to Jesus, brushing up against him even, is not enough. Remember how Jesus at one point, this comes out of Mark chapter 5, Remember, he was in a town somewhere, and uh, people were all around him, thronging him, big mob, right? 
Disciples were there. Jesus walking through this crowd. Well, this woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, spent all her money on doctors. Nobody had been able to heal her. Here's about Jesus. That he's healing incurable diseases. No, he's coming to town. And so he waits until he passes by. And she just, on her hands and knees, reaches out and grabs the hem of his garment because she's like, I can just touch his garment. I'm going to be made well. And sure enough, she was instantly made well. Jesus stopped. Who touched me? The disciples, who touched you, Lord? The crowd's thronging you on every side. You say, who touched me? Everyone's touching you. No, no, this touch was different. This was a touch of faith. And of course, the crowd opened up, and she fell at her face at the Lord's feet, thinking she had done something wrong. He said, no, 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 woman, you haven't done something wrong. You've done something right. Your faith has made you well go in peace. Guys, there are people who come to church all the time and brush up against Jesus. But they never receive anything from him. They never save. Why? Because they don't take it to the next step, as Jesus said, and drink of me. Drink of me. To drink here means to believe in and receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That's why he finishes this very succinct gospel presentation with the idea of drinking. Come to, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Not just come and hang out in church. It means to take him into your, into your heart the way you take a glass of water into your body. It means believing in him to the point of commitment. The Bible says the devil believes in Jesus. Demons believe and tremble. They're not saved. Why? They haven't made a commitment to him. It's just head knowledge. They believe he is who he said he is. They, they know he's the son of God. There's a lot of folks that know the basics. They know the doctrine, but they've never received Christ into their heart as their own personal Savior, Right? The result is once a person does it, not only are they blessed, they become a blessing to everybody they come in contact with. Uh, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John, writing his gospel 60 years after this, adds his own commentary in verse 39, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom Jesus, excuse me, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened on Pentecost, uh, a few months, uh, 50 days actually, after Jesus was uh, res uh, resurrected. And that's the day the church was born, Acts 2. But I want you to know this. With regard to the filling of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, listen to me. God never intended for us to be reservoirs that just contain the Spirit. He always intended that we be channels through which the Spirit would flow to a lost and dying world. That we would be a source of refreshment. That we would be a well, because it's bubbling up from within us unto eternal life. That we would share the gospel. That we would show people that our lives have been changed. And their lives can be changed if they simply give their hearts to Christ. Drink of Him, right? Let me just end by saying this. Not everyone who thirsts and even comes to Jesus is necessarily going to wind up being saved. And I'm thinking of the rich young ruler when I say that, okay? Look, the rich young ruler thirsted for eternal life, didn't he? He eagerly ran to Jesus. I'm looking at Mark 10. He eagerly ran to Jesus, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was thirsty. He was empty. He knew that. What do I lack? 
He, he, he knew he needed eternal life. He needed Jesus, right? But his thirst, it says in verse 22, he went away sorrowful. His thirst was unquenched. Why? Because he was unwilling to take the next step and drink of Christ. Or in other words, he was unwilling to receive Jesus Christ into his heart as his Lord and Savior. He was unwilling to get off the throne of his heart and let Jesus sit down as the rightful king. He was wealthy. He didn't want to give up his money. Jesus said, give it away to the poor. Come follow me. He was unwilling to do that. See, he wanted to add Jesus to his life. A lot of folks want to add Jesus to their lives. They really don't want to make Jesus their life. They just want to kind of add him to their life. As somebody has said, they want to make him the frosting on the cake of life, the salt in the soup of life. He's, he's an addition, but not the, not the main thing. And Jesus says to anyone like that, I'm not going to be added to your life. I have to become your life or else you don't get eternal life. Guys, there are many people in churches all across America at this very moment who, like the rich young ruler, are thirsting in their soul. And they have an idea they're thirsting for God. So they come to church. You know, they run to Jesus like the rich young ruler, but leave empty because they haven't gone all the way where they have received him into their heart as their own personal Lord and Savior. They didn't drink. Oh, they thirsted. They came but they didn't drink and therefore weren't filled or satisfied because they weren't saved. And eventually, they'll grow tired of church when it doesn't fulfill the emptiness inside them and then they're going to be off trying to fill the void with something or someone new. The day of grace will eventually come to an end for them. They're going to die. And the dark night of a Christless eternity will begin and will never end. The words of Isaiah 55, verse 6 are very important right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And that simply means while you're still alive on this earth. Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the appointed time. Every day, it's not a good day for me to be saved yet. I just, I've heard people say that. Well, maybe down the future, today's not a good day to be saved. Paul said, today is the day. This is the approved time, all right? This is the day of salvation, Hebrews 4, 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You may not get another chance, Hebrews 10. Verses 37 to 9, yet for a little while he is coming and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, those who are truly redeemed. God says, but anyone who draws back, my soul has no pleasure in them. He's not talking about the redeemed there. He's talking about those seekers who come, check out Jesus, know they need to, to, to really uh, have him in their life like the rich young ruler, but go away sorrowful because they're not willing to give up anything, really to have Christ be their Savior. They draw back to perdition. Perdition is hell. They come to the border of salvation, check everything out. But like the rich young ruler, ah, it's not for me because I got too much stuff. 
You know, I have a locker with stuff. I got stuff everywhere, you know. I pay monthly for a storage stuff locker, and I just can't give up all my stuff. <laughs> Take up my cross, deny myself, follow Jesus. What, crazy? Can't I just kind of add him in, and, and we just, you know, go from there? No. Either Jesus, either he's everything or he's nothing. So that's the choice. Chapter 7, a very evangelistic chapter. Of course, built around the Feast of Tabernacles, a feast where God was uh, having them commemorate how he quenched their physical thirst. And now Jesus says, here, here, I'm the one that everything has been built around, and I'm here to quench your spiritual thirst, to fill the void in your soul and to give you living water that you will never thirst again in your soul, and you'll have everlasting life. In fact, you'll become a channel to which I can touch others with living water. That's what we have in front of us. And thank God for all you folks here this morning who have said, yes, I want a drink. And you did. You're saved. If you're not one of those, can I encourage you not to leave here today? before you make peace with God by receiving his son. Come on up afterward. Love to talk to you, pray with you, give you a Bible. Jesus Christ is the answer. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, which is obviously truth in its entirety. Father, if there's anyone listening either right now or maybe in the future on radio or online who is listening to this study and does not know you maybe they're religious but they don't have a relationship with you touch their hearts open their eyes bring them to jesus we pray father that they might be saved because your invitation is to anyone come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden i'll give you rest come to me Jesus said, drink of me, the living water that I give. Lord, we just pray for them, that they would make the right choice right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.